Father, thank you for your word. Deepen our, our hearts with a vision of what is to come, Lord, that we would be strengthened here and now. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 22, 1 through 21, you can grab a Bible in your pew or follow along on the screen. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street. Also on either side of the street, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of the book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do, righteous, still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to, to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and moist star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. This is God's word. This is our last sermon series, a sermon in the series Overcomers. The title of this uh, 
sermon today is the end vision. The end vision. There are three things that we could take away from this text today. Number one, the beauty of Christ's return. Secondly, the beatitudes of Christ's return. And lastly, the beckoning of Christ's return. The beauty, the beatitudes, the beckoning. The beauty. I remember a fall Friday afternoon, my family and I were driving from New York City on a Friday afternoon up to Boston. I was a chaplain for the Columbia University football team, and they were playing Harvard that weekend. And so we drove, leaving the city in all of its traffic, in the rain, going up through Connecticut on Route 15 in lots of traffic. I mean, just, oh my goodness. Have you ever been in heavy traffic? It's just so frustrating. It is, it's just, can we please go? Can we just all agree? Can we just all agree to go? <laughs> It's so frustrating. There's so much anxiety. You're like, we're just at the beginning part of our trip. We're trying to get somewhere. And at some point on this fall Friday afternoon, the rain stops. And we're going through the rolling hills of Connecticut, somewhere north of Greenwich. And the, the glorious colors of the trees and the orange and the yellow and the red, above all of that peaks out a double rainbow. So glorious. It's just one of those things. It's like it happens so fast, you barely have time to even photo. It's a, it's a picture of how in this world we have both pain and beauty. But Christianity gives us an envision where one day we will have a world where there is only beauty and no pain. The, the, the beauty of the world to come will far eclipse the beauty of this world. And there will be no pain with it. This is the end vision of Christianity. The thing about being human is we all have an end vision. We all have some picture of what it is that we are living for or what we hope to see happen in our lives or in our families. And in fact, if we look at our life and we take it and dissect it, we have incremental envisions along the way. If you're in grade school, by the time I graduate high school, I'm going to know maybe what, I, what I'm going to major in. If you're in college, you're thinking, well, by the time I get out of here, I'm going to know what I want to do with my life, hopefully. Otherwise, I'll go to grad school. By the time I'm 30, I'll have figured out either single life or maybe I'll be in a relationship. Who knows? By the time I retire, I'll have amassed whatever and be able to do what I want or whatever the picture is. But we all have one. We all have an end vision. We all have these incremental end visions. We all have a vision for how life should work, how things should work out. We progress through life and we, we bear through things because we have this vision. And it plays out even in the stories we tell in our culture and the books that we read and the movies that we watch, we have an envision. Whether it's a sense and, sense, sense and sensibility, 
the longing for the Dashwood sisters, both the one who represents good sense and the one who represents good sensibility, that they would both get married. The story can't end until they both get married, right? Or whether it's the Marvel Avengers. And if you see Infinity War, you're like, this cannot be the end. Come on, how can they die? That's not right. Until you see the end game and you realize, okay, okay, now it can be done. This is the vision. Because what's built inside of us is this desire to escape death, to have love that never parts, and for good to triumph over evil. In fact, uh, Tolkien, he says in this uh, essay, he says that in all of, in, in modernity, one of the things that has survived modernity is that in all of our fairy tales, and you think about the movies we watch, the books that we read, the stories we tell our kids, what has survived is this, is this primordial desire to escape death, to, see, to have a love that never parts, and to see good triumph over evil. That is the picture that we see here in this end vision. It is the ultimate story of stories. It's the story that causes us deep inside. We know this is how things should work out, but it's only in Christ that they actually come to pass. It's the ultimate end vision. And here's the thing. You need an end vision. You need, you need something to bear through all of the pain and suffering and hardships and curveballs that life throws at you. You need one. Sometimes, it, it, so, so, so here's an example. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, what, I'll give you some examples of why that's true. Admiral Jim Stockdale, who is the highest ranking officer, a military officer, who was detained in the Hanoi uh, Hilton uh, as a POW in Vietnam. And he was tortured over, he was, he was detained for seven years about, and he was tortured over 20 times. And he did an interview with Jim Collins, and, who wrote the book Good to Great. And in this interview, he, Jim Collins is like, I, I just, I can't imagine. I've read your story. It's so depressing. How did you make it through that? And here's what Admiral uh, Jim Stockdale says. He says, you have to understand, it was never depressing. Because despite all those circumstances, I never ever wavered in my absolute faith that I could not only, that I not only would I, that not only would I prevail, get out of this, but I would also prevail by turning it into the defining event of my life that would make me stronger and a better person. Do you hear what he's saying? The, the, the way that he survived is he had an envision. He says, I know I'm getting out of this. I know I'm going to make it through. So he did. He survived. But here's the thing. There are lots of folks in his same situation who were tortured. They didn't survive. And he says, the ones that didn't survive, it was the optimists. Jim Collins is like, well, I don't understand. How is, that, how is that the case? Well, he said, the optimists would say, we'll get out of here by Christmas. 
And then Christmas would come, and they were still there. And then they would say, well, we'll get, we'll get out of here by Easter. And then Easter would come, and then they, would, they were still there. And at some point, because their vision was off, they couldn't sustain hope. It crushed them. And they gave up hope, and they didn't survive. And the same is true for you. You need an envision that will allow you to have a hope beyond hope that cannot be crushed. And that's what's offered here in this scripture, the beauty of Christ's return. It is a picture that is described for the benefit of the seven churches. And if you recall in chapters two and three of Revelation, these seven churches are going through tremendous turmoil, tremendous suffering. They're being persecuted. In one case, there's a church where Jesus himself is referencing a man who was, who was martyred. There's lots of talk of martyrdom throughout Revelation because they're in a time in the late part of the first century where Emperor Domitian is about to wreak havoc throughout the Roman Empire. And there's the first time in the, in the history where there is widespread persecution of Christians. Christians being thrown you know, into prison, being executed, being thrown into the arena before the lions and being torn apart. And if you can imagine the trauma and the fear that the church would have at a period of time like this, and this letter is written to help them get through the most difficult things that they wouldn't be able to get through otherwise. And if you allow it, this envision will help you get through things that you wouldn't be able to get through otherwise. They were able to get through things far more intense. You and I can get through whatever we face as long as we have a clear sense of the envision of what Jesus is doing. In verses one through five, we see this picture, this scene, the beauty of the new city. It's really a continuation of the vision from chapter 21, the new city that came down from heaven. And we see that you've got a river flowing the water of life flowing from the throne of God is harking back to a, a, an image from Ezekiel chapter 47 where we see the throne, this glorious throne, a better throne when the people of God are exiled and the prophecy is that there's going to one day be a throne that's better, I'm sorry, a temple that is better than the one before and out of it is going to flow this water and it's going to touch as it goes farther and farther, it gets deeper and everything it touches, it brings life. And that's a, that really is, it's a prophetic utterance that is ultimately fulfilled, the new city. And this water, it flows, except it's not flowing from a temple, it's flowing from the throne. Because, as we learned in chapter 21, it's God, the one who's sitting on the throne, and the Lamb. They are the temple. They are the one that we, that we worship. It's all about our triune God. It flows through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side is the tree of life. We could see that as a collective. There are many trees. The, the, the leaves of the trees are bringing healing to the nations, which is, which is more of a preservative effect than a therapeutic. There is no disease. There is no sickness in the new city, but it's just there's a continuous health that all people of God will enjoy. No longer there, will there be anything accursed, this is a better paradise than even the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve had perfect communion with God, but one day a curse came because they disobeyed. In this new city, there will be no curse. 
because there's only a perfect obedience. There's only perfect relationship. The things that you and I struggle with today in this life, we will not struggle in the new heavens and the new earth. It's such a beautiful scene. But here is the, here is the, what is so amazing. And it's so short, but it's so amazing. In verse three. But the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it, which by the way, one throne for our triune God. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Do you know how significant that is? We will see him face to face. The thing that has evaded the people of God throughout all of scripture is being able to sit in the presence of God and see his face. Even Moses who was transformed in the presence of God and had to wear a veil because of the brightness that emanated from his own face, having been on the mountain. In Exodus chapter 33, when when Moses says, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. God says, okay, I will show you, but I will only show you my backside. You cannot see my face. Even when Jesus comes, he shows us the nature of God in the incarnation, as it says in John chapter 1, the gospel that John wrote. There's an obscuring of the glory because of the darkness that is in, that's in us. But there's also, it is a, for lack of a better word, a muted, a muted glory. In John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer, Jesus is saying, Lord, now will you return the glory that I once had with you before the foundation of the world? In other words, Jesus, he demonstrated the fullness of God to us in his bodily form, as Colossians says, but it wasn't the fullness of seeing the face of God. It is only in this instance that we will see his face, face to face. And and, and the scripture says, we will become like him. We will be transformed. The most beautiful thing, all the beauty in the all of creation emanating from one person, and we will see him face to face. It will be glorious, the beauty of Christ's return. Let's talk about the Beatitudes. The second point, the Beatitudes of Christ's return. Beatitude means blessed, or supreme blessedness. Supreme blessedness. If you're familiar with um, the Sermon on the Mount, there are beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, etc. And throughout Revelation, there are, of course, seven beatitudes. Two of them are here. In verse 7, the Lord himself says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is the one who keeps the words. This is Jesus saying. In other words, to be an overcomer, keep, keep the word, keep, listen, obey. Revelation is not just about a bunch of freaky symbols and signs. It's not actually about that. It's about, it's about Jesus 
and is a message to the church about following him in the most difficult of circumstances. And, the, and, and, the, and Jesus is saying, you will be supremely blessed if you obey this revelation, if you obey what's listed in it, to worship God, to fear him, to set him apart in your hearts, to repent of things, of, to get back to your first love, all the things that it's instructing. It reminds me of, so th- th- this week, I, uh, I, I got to pick up my, so Becca, her engagement ring, she lost one of the diamonds. Thankfully, it was not the main one. That, that would be bad. One is good enough, though, right? So, so I took it in to get repaired a couple weeks ago. And this whole process, it reminded me of the whole event of paying for the engagement ring in the first place some time ago. And because they asked you, well, so how much is it worth? I'm like, oh, you know, I forgot. Um, but, but the thing is, in the moment, I didn't forget because it took me so many efforts. <laughs> Here, here's a little bit more <laughs> of several months to pay for that ring. Okay, here's a few more. Here's a little bit. Okay, I don't know how long, much longer this is going to take me, but I finally paid it off. And the thing is, when I gave the ring to her, I didn't just say, here, have this. There were things attached to the giving of that ring. Among them was, you know, my will, I can't just make decisions for myself anymore. Now I will yield my will to you, right? And likewise for her. When we look at the picture of this end vision, the imagery of a wedding is ever-present. The lamb and the bride For Jesus to say, you will be supremely blessed by obeying, it's to say that this is not just a transactional exchange. This is, I want to surrender my will to this lamb. He's inviting you to surrender and serve and to obey the words of this book because it is you yielding your will to him, our crucified and risen Lord. That's the first beatitude. The second beatitude He says in verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon. I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. But in verse 14, John says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city. We sang this morning, ride on King Jesus. It's a Negro spiritual. And that's important because you have to understand, the folks who were reading this, they were marginalized. They had no political power. They had no, you know, many of them are really poor. Christians were on the margins of society. They had no leverage. They were being persecuted. Some lost their jobs because of the idolatry attached to their job, and they wanted to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And to hear this message... Jesus is coming soon. I'm bringing my recompense. I will repay each one for what he has done. We think of that as simply a warning, but it's actually an encouragement. Because when you are oppressed, how do you make it through that? What vision gets you through that? It's knowing that one day, no one will get away with anything. Jesus is going to repay each one for what he has done. And so if, you are, if you're a solo, you're the lowest on the totem pole, you are a slave in first century or in North American slave trade, 
to know that the one who is coming is going to make everybody, he's going to repay everyone for what they have done, good or bad, that brings me comfort. Which is why for the, for the, for the, 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 the enslaved African Americans, so many of their songs are about heaven and about that day. And, and there's an invitation even in the song that we sang, fare thee well, fare thee well on that great morning. I hope that it will fare well with you. It's an encouragement for the oppressed, but it is a warning for those who have opposed Christ. And so therefore, verse 14 is, a, is really an invitation. Blessed are those who wash their robes. That washing, as we refer back to Revelation chapter 7, is a washing in the blood of Jesus. In the, in the scene of this is the picture of the cross. It's the blood of Jesus that atones for our sins. This is not a washing of our works, but it is a washing of coming. And the only thing that can remove the stains of our heart is the blood of Jesus. And it's only by the blood of Jesus that we can inherit this tree of life, the eternal life that it represents, and enter this eternal city. The blood of Jesus is our point of access. Those are the Beatitudes of his coming. And lastly, lastly, the beckoning. The beckoning of Christ's return. The beckoning. There's a two-way beckoning that we see here. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come, in quotes. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take water of life without price. It goes on, then it says in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come, Lord Jesus. It's a two-way beckoning. It's a beckoning both, Jesus, hasten forth, come, Lord. But it's also a beckoning to the one who is thirsty. Come and receive from this, this risen Lord. Come and receive the water that you cannot buy. Scholars will say for verses 18, um, I'm sorry, 17, they're split over whether the spirit and the bride are saying come to those that don't know the Lord or if it's come to the Lord himself. But certainly in context, both are true and both are present here. It's a two-way beckoning. But I want to emphasize, it is an invitation to you this morning to come and receive the water Come if you are thirsty to receive. Because here's the thing. When you don't have an envision, end vision, you lose hope. There's an Afghanistan uh, activist. Uh, she's an activist for women's rights in Afghanistan. And she's Afghani herself. And I heard her say, you know, recently as the Taliban has overtaken um, the country, girls 12 years old and older can no longer go to school, right? Can you imagine? And so this activist, she says she's, she encourages girls. She's like, listen, you have to keep hope. You have to keep hoping. You have to keep, you have to keep hope alive because if you lose hope, you're going to lose more than your education. You have to keep hope alive. And, and, and so... When our Lord Jesus, when he was on the cross, 
among the words that he uttered was, I thirst. I thirst. He had been rejected by God. God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had been rejected. And he is experiencing cosmic hopelessness. So that you can have eternal hope in him. He thirsted so that he could offer you who are thirsty the water of life. Come, come and drink his water. He tells the woman at the well, I have, in John chapter 4, I have a water. If you drink it, you will never thirst again. This is that water, the water of life. It is free. It is by grace alone. This text has future implications. It has present bearing as well. In the here and now, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church. And that river of life that flows as we see in the new city, as we gather on Sundays for worship, like the picture harking back to Ezekiel 47, is to flow out through us. The life of God, as we gather, is to go out and it follows us across to campus, back to our dorms. It follows us in the cars as we go back home. It follows us on Monday morning as we show up for work or we're on Zoom or whatever the case is. It's the life of God. God desires, it's through his church, it's through the gathering of his people and us scattering that his life goes back and it transforms others around us, our neighbors, our friends, our family. But it also, this, this vision, it has tremendous future implications and it really is an invitation for you. What is your end vision? What are you aiming for? Does it align with this end vision? Because if it doesn't, well, you can't actually guarantee the thing that you're hoping for. But this, over and over in this text says, this is going to come. It is coming. This city, this, this, new, this new heavens and new earth, it's on its way. And you, you, you better buy into this vision and surrender and, and live by what this book says and the rest of the, the, the books of the scriptures say. And it's an invitation for you to wash your robes in his blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing vision. You are the alpha and the omega. And then because you are the beginning and the end, the first and the last, you could show us what is to come. I pray that you would expand in our hearts this vision, deepen it, Lord, that we would be sustained through the things in our life that we experience and that we would be, that we would be, that we would be encouraged to turn away from sin and to turn to you, to wash our robes. We thank you for your presence with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.